It's, uh, it's, good. it's good to be back here this morning. And uh, uh, while, I, while I was uh, away, you know, I got to enjoy not just, of course, uh, vacation and, and uh, all that, but uh, being able to be spiritually refreshed and being able to go and, and uh, hear uh, my pastor's son visit and preach uh, as he prepares for the ministry and my pastor preach and uh, taking my kids to VBS, Vacation Bible School, and getting to see them attend that and the program. And uh, it was uh, encouraging and uh, refreshing. And it's good to be back this morning, to be able to uh, present with you this, this morning. And uh, while I was out, my, my, pa- uh, my old pastor, the pa- uh, pastor of the church where my parents still attend, he, he asked me while I was there, would you uh, like to lead Bible study uh, this Thursday night, this past Thursday night? And he said, you know, I understand if you don't, because you're on vacation, some pastors don't like to work while they're on vacation. I said, well, you know what? This is a good opportunity for me to uh, prepare something that maybe I can um, use for Sunday. So that's what I did. I uh, took that opportunity. And uh, so what I've been planning to do ever since before I left back is to start a new study uh, when we returned. I, we were looking at Second uh, Samuel in the uh, morning services. We, we took that into the evening service, the last evening service uh, that we had when I was uh, still in town. And so we're looking at 2 Samuel, continuing our study in that. I invite you all to come back for that. Uh, if you've enjoyed that series, uh, we'll con- we're continuing that tonight in our evening service at 6. And we'll be looking at uh, the continuation of some trouble with, that David found when he gets back to Jerusalem. And the kingdom is reestablished under his rule, but there's still some division. And we'll look at that tonight. We'll also be looking at the life of Joab. Probably next week we'll focus on the life of Joab and uh, be continuing that series. I want to let you know that is still going on and that's just been moved to the evening service. And this morning I wanted to uh, come to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is one of three or four what, is, what are called the pastoral epistles, the pastoral epistles, uh, which are considered, generally considered First and Second Timothy, as well as the book of Titus, which we looked at. We studied for our evening service series uh, the previous few weeks before uh, taking the Second Samuel series into the evening service. We went through uh, the pastoral epistle of Titus. And another epistle that's sometimes considered a pastoral epistle is Philemon. Now, the difference in these books uh, written by the Apostle Paul is that instead of being addressed to an entire church congregation, they're, they're addressed to one individual in particular. Uh, in this case, of course, Timothy. Now, of course, it comes to be for the church in general as we study it today. Um, as it's been included in the New Testament canon for us by the inspiration and preservation of the Holy Spirit as God's word. And the reason it's called a pastoral epistle, uh, one of the pastoral epistles is it deals a lot with uh, pastoral leadership uh, and is very beneficial uh, to pastors to study. And uh, it's one of those books that when you're in seminary, they t- uh, for me, my seminary, they tell you, this is one of the books you should preach your first year. I'm coming up. Uh, I've enjoyed, it's been over a year since I've been preaching here in the Bible Church of Lakeshore, but of course, um, this August will mark the one year of, of being here 
uh, since you voted me to come in as, as pastor. And I, I've enjoyed that, that, uh, that journey and being able to serve here with you and uh, hoping to and looking forward to continuing that journey. And as we draw close to the near, near to the close of that first year, I do want to study this uh, with you in our morning service. We took one of the pastoral epistles, Titus, and, and went through it in the evening service. Now we're going to take 1 Timothy and go through it in the morning services. And to start our study of 1 Timothy, I want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, my plan is to go all the way to the, th the first few verses of chapter 2 this morning. And in this passage, we find three elements of ministry. And really, when we talk about ministry, I don't want you to just think of, oh, this is talking about pastors and the job of a pastor. But no, ministry that all of us have a duty, have a God's calling for our lives, that we should serve him with our lives and with our involvement in our local church. And whether that's here for those of you who are members and regular attenders or who, who we hope we'll, will be or if you're visiting from out of town like I was um, back up in Minnesota the last couple of weeks. On, I know a lot of people travel in the summer. If you're just visiting with us, wherever your local church is, God wants you to be a part of the ministry that he has for you through your local church and as an individual in your family and, and uh, in your personal life ministry, serving God. So we find three elements this morning in this passage of ministry that should encourage all of us on how God wants us to serve him through our local church and personal involvement. Three elements of ministry found in this passage to encourage us of how we ought to be serving God. Let's uh, open this uh, message in prayer. And then we'll look at the first element of ministry. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that we will now rightly divide it, that, that you will help me to present your word and the message that you want for each of us to understand and to come away with as an application to our life of how you want us to serve you and glorify you with our lives, that we would point others to you and that we ourselves would draw closer to you. And one way that we can do that is serving you. And I just pray that you will uh, speak to our hearts now and move in our lives through your word, we pray, for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The first element of ministry that I'd like us to look at this morning in this passage is the purpose of ministry. We'll look at that in the first uh, several verses. Let's... Starting at verse 1 of 1 Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace. And there's an you know, interesting side note here. This may at first glance, this looks like a typical greeting of Paul. He makes it clear who this letter is from, who this letter is to. It's from Paul to Timothy, his spiritual son. Timothy is not Paul's physical son. Uh, Paul was, was never married from what we know of scripture. And Timothy had a father who was a Greek, had a mother who was a Jew. 
and he was from a town called Lystra, where Paul journeyed uh, during his second uh, missionary journey in, as recorded in Acts chapter 14. And when he came to Lystra, uh, Paul had experienced some Jewish persecution in some of the previous uh, cities that he had stopped at. Those Jews were, were not happy with him. They're going to end up following him to Leicester. But before they get there, he heals a lame man. And Leicester is a Gentile city predominantly in uh, the region of Galatia, so in Asia Minor, which is now uh, Turkey. Uh, and, well, actually, I might be getting my geography off a little bit. In the region of uh, between Greece and Turkey and that general part of the world over there in southeast, uh, southeastern Europe, or if you want to consider it uh, northeastern or eastern Asia. In this region of Galatia, Lystra, we had a lot of Greek influence. Timothy's father was a Greek. And a lot of pagan influence, you know, Greek mythology and such, and, and Greek uh, worship of, of, of many different gods. And when Paul healed a lame man, uh, not Paul himself, but of course God healing it using Paul, uh, the people wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. And they, wanted to, they were about to make a sacrifice. And they, Paul was barely able, and Barnabas were barely able to persuade them not to make that sacrifice. And uh, so they didn't make the sacrifice to them, and Paul gave the gospel to them, telling them, you know, he's not a god, and gives the gospel. And Timothy may have come to Christ through that witness, or perhaps Timothy's mother, who taught Timothy the Old Testament, we know from 2 Timothy, uh, Paul speaks of Timothy's mother imparting that knowledge of the scriptures to her son Timothy. And perhaps she actually came to Christ before he did and brought that gospel to him. But no doubt Paul's stop in his hometown had a great influence on him. Shortly after that, the Jews from those other cities who were out to get Paul arrive in that city and they stirred up a riot and stoned Paul to death in Timothy's hometown. And then Paul rose up. He may have actually died and been miraculously raised from the dead by God. The Jews left him for dead after stoning him, which is it's hard to survive a stoning when they take large rocks and, and uh, just pelted him with it. And, uh, but he survived or was raised from the dead by God. He was left for dead by the Jews who rioted and sought to kill him. And then the believers gathered around him and God raised him up. And he survived. And that was in Timothy's hometown. So, Certainly, that would have, uh, Timothy would have heard of that, perhaps witnessed it himself. And so Paul speaks to Timothy as his son, his spiritual son. Paul had no doubt spent time with Timothy, mentoring him. In Acts chapter 16, we find that when Paul returns to Lystra, he finds Timothy as a disciple who is ready to serve the Lord and takes him with him. And he eventually, by the time this book of 1 Timothy is written, is an itinerant preacher, an itinerant pastor who can go and represent Paul to a church. In this case, the church of Ephesus, a very important church. 
who Paul gave a farewell sermon to that last summer, about a year ago, I, I brought a message. One of my very first messages here was on Acts, uh, I believe chapter 19 or 18, uh, dealing with Paul's farewell sermon to the leaders of the church of Ephesus. And he warned them there, especially against doctrine, against false teachers that would rise up even from among them. One of the things that he, in the following verses, Paul addresses to Timothy is the importance of sound doctrine. And Timothy is representing Paul, see, overseeing uh, the church of Ephesus. And so Paul writes this letter specifically to Timothy regarding that and encouraging Timothy as a leader in the church, as an itinerant preacher, pastor, a young man comparatively. I'm sure there were many there in that area that were much older than Timothy. He's a young man. And so Paul addresses him, verse 2, And to Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace. And what's interesting here when he greets him is in all of Paul's epistles, he starts his letter to the church, grace and peace, grace and peace. But in only three of his letters, three of his epistles, Paul adds the word mercy. They're the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. He adds the word mercy. I think it's because us preachers need mercy. Mercy is not getting something you deserve, some kind of uh, consequence or punishment, or that preachers need mercy, pastors need mercy. So he says, to my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 3, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went unto the Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions, rather than godly edifying, which is in the faith, so do. Now to the end of the commandment, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside into vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law and understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, and for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So in this opening section, the first 11 verses, we find the first element of ministry is the purpose of ministry. And looking back at the opening three verses, the first part of the purpose of ministry is teaching sound doctrine. Look back at verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. No other doctrine meaning nothing that God does not intend to be taught. Anything that is contrary to the word of God, to the truth of God's word. So ministry, a very important part of the purpose of ministry, 
is the teaching of God's doctrine. There can be organizations that call themselves churches, that have a church government, whether it be an ecclesiastical government uh, that is, um, has a hierarchy, uh, we call, call it a, a Episcopalian government, that's not the denomination, but a general type of government, or Presbyterian type of government, or congregational type of government, doesn't matter. If you have the structure, you have the church government, you have the organization, you have the building, what matters most of all is the teaching, the doctrine. Is it from God's word or not? That's what determines. Is this truly a church where the people are being taught God's truth? Is it no other doctrine but God's truth, the truth of his word? Thou mayest charge them that they teach no other doctrine. So. In teaching no other doctrine, we are to another part of the purpose of ministry is avoid anything that is not godly edifying. We find this in verse 4, godly edifying. In other words, something that builds us up to become more like Jesus, godly, more like God. That we would be built up by the doctrine, by the teachings of God's word become more like him, to glorify him with our lives. Look at verse 4. Neither give heed to fables. So these are things that are not godly edifying. Neither give heed to fables. These are stories that are, are not true. Of course, there's a lot of Greek mythology, also Jewish mythology that was popular at the time. At the time that Paul writes this, some of these fables would have had to do with Gnosticism and the idea that Jesus was not... Uh, human, that he was only God and not human at all, um, that anything human is, and fleshly and earthly is, is bad and, and the spiritual and angelic and divine is only what is good, and separating the two and, and trying to live a life that is uh, not physical and only spiritual. And, and that was one of those fables, one of those stories that it's not true, were endless genealogies. And genealogies went along with that, with those who were in Gnosticism. They taught that, oh, somehow in Jesus' genealogy, there was these angelic beings called aeons, and they weren't really human. So uh, it was just fables and genealogies, and things that are not true genealogies, or perhaps if we go to the other idea that was popular at the time Paul writes this, it's Judaism, the idea of going back to the law and that the more you follow the Mosaic law and the more Jewish you are, the more spiritual you are. And that would also be something that would be contrary to what uh, God is teaching through the New Testament, through Paul and his writing here, is that genealogies, yes, this is not referring to genealogies in the Bible where we can connect Christ to David and to Abraham and Adam, we have that bridge between the New Testament and Old Testament in the genealogies we find in Matthew and Luke that connect all the way back to genealogies we find in the Chronicles and in other places of the Old Testament. Those genealogies are important for historical record and for showing that Jesus Christ is the son of David, that he 
has a human lineage that fulfills prophecies found in the Old Testament and bridges the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not talking about that kind of genealogy. We don't have to avoid studying genealogies in the Bible. They're there by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we can study those genealogies. What this is talking about, avoid these fables and genealogies, is focusing on, hey, I am more spiritual than you because my father was so-and-so and his father was, and I can trace my genealogy. And of course, that can even get into more of a racist type of thinking um, where they're basing their spirituality on their genealogy, and that's not right at all. So neither give heed to fables or endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. So in other words, we need to avoid anything that is not building us up to be, live godly lives. So things that are questions that we don't need to consider uh, about genealogies or fables, things that aren't true, let's not uh, bring them in and discuss them and get distracted by those things or argue about things that, that don't matter. Sometimes, you know, it can be easy to get into argument about something that doesn't matter. Uh, I find this with my kids sometimes. Uh, one's three and one's four. And on our vacation, they started arguing about bug bites. Um, the, the older one, uh, Julia, the four-year-old, said, a bug bit me. And Jail, the younger one, said, no. It's just licking you. It's just licking you. It's just licking you. It's not biting you. And Julia said, no, it bit me. And Jail said, no, it's just licking you. And they went back and forth for, and we're like, well, guys, guys, okay. Uh, they started getting very adamant about that. And, you know, some churches have split over things like the color of the carpet. And some, you know, that a silly illustration, but yet we got to be careful. What is it that we focus our minds and our speech on and our study on? Let's make sure it's the things that are building us up to become more godly in our lives, not things that, that don't matter, um, fables and gene endless genealogies which minister questions. Uh, let's uh, put those things aside, says Paul, and focus on God's word, God's truth, and what is edifying, what builds us up, what encourages us. And part of the purpose, not only teach the doctrine of God, not only avoid anything that's not godly edifying, but part of the purpose of serving God in ministry is produce love. Ministry, serving God, Timothy's pastoral ministry in Ephesus, the purpose of it is produce love and faith. True love, pure love out of a pure heart and faith unfeigned. Look at verse 5. The end or the purpose of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. That's the end. That's the purpose that ministry should get us to, that serving God, that studying his word and teaching his word, that is the purpose. Not to compare ourselves to one another and um, argue about this or that, um, but to build us up and become more like Christ. Verse 6, from which some have swerved. You know, in, uh, when I see the word swerved in the Old King James, if you're using another translation, you may use a different word. I think of driving down the road and 
a deer or something else jumps out in front of you and you swerve to miss it, you end up in the ditch. You're, you're not going on the path you intended and you've swerved from that. This word in the original language actually has a medical meaning referring to being out of joint, like a shoulder or other uh, that's out of its socket. It's not where it's intended to be, okay? So you can't use it the way you're supposed to use it. You're uh, kept from that, as if your car went into a ditch and you can't continue on your journey where you're intending to go until you're pulled out of that ditch, your shoulder's out of socket, you can't use it the way you need to, it's very painful and uh, until it's put back into place. We don't want to swerve or turn aside. Look at verse 6. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. Vain jangling is things that sound good, but they're empty. They, have, they, they don't have that real substance. Like someone who says, how are you doing? Hey, I really... Uh, and and they, they say some good things to you, but they don't really care. It's, not, it's meaningless. It's just words. Okay? Um, or something that is a story or, or sounds good, it's encouraging, but it has not the truth of God's word in it. So we've got to be careful about that. You, know, you can turn on the TV and go to preaching on TV, but is it God's word or is it just vain jangling? It sounds good, but it's not what God is, is trying to get to, to build us up and to become more like Christ from his word, the truth of his doctrine. Verse 7, notice that some of these people, they don't even understand. Desiring, verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. And speaking of the Mosaic law, as in the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments, the law is good if it's used lawfully. There's a purpose for the law. There's a purpose for the law. What is the purpose? Well, God's Word tells us what the purpose for his law is, if you'll turn with me as a, as a reference, Romans 3. Romans 3 tells us the purpose for the law. If it's used lawfully, what is lawfully? What does that mean? Romans 3. Um, starting down in verse 21. Actually, I'm going to back all the way up to verse 19. Verse 19 of Romans 3. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. Okay, so there's the purpose statement right there. That. That word, that, tells you, this is telling you what, what the purpose of the law is. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. In other words, the law was not intended for us to look at it and say, here's my checklist, I'm a pretty good person. There, yep, there's the law, I'm pretty good. Uh, no, it was, show, it was given to show us how far we fall short of God how bad we are, how much we need God's forgiveness, and how Jesus is the cure for the sickness that we have because of sin. That we have broken God's law, fallen short of God's righteousness. He is so holy, and the law shows us God is holy, we are not. We fall short. If we continue reading in Romans 3, it makes it even uh, more clear. Verse 20. 
Therefore, by the deeds of law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law shows us that there's a problem, that we've broken God's law, we've sinned. Uh, just like if we didn't know, if we didn't see a speed uh, limit sign, we didn't know, oh, we can't go above that speed. But because those signs are there, we know what speed limit is. So when we get pulled over by the police for going above that, oh, yes, uh, I broke the law. The law tells us, okay, this is what's wrong. Don't do that. So that when we break it, we know why we have to be punished and why we now have to pay the fine. And if we can't pay the fine, we go to jail. And Jesus paid the fine for us on the cross. He paid for our punishment. And we have to believe that by faith. We have to accept that forgiveness. We have to access that through faith. But he, through his grace, a gift we don't deserve, offers that. But, verse 12, but the law brings the knowledge that we need payment made for us. Because otherwise, people tend to think that they're pretty good, that they're okay, that they don't need a Savior to die on the cross for them, but they don't understand their need, that the law condemns us, that we've come short of God's glory, that we've broken God's law. Verse 22 in Romans 3 says, For even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, which means payment, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And where is boasting then? It is excluded by the law of works, nay, but of the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, and of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we not then make void the law through, through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. In other words, sometimes you hear, if, we'll, if you'll turn back with me, by the way, we'll be right back in, in 1 Timothy 1. Sometimes you hear, in the Old Testament we're under law, in the New Testament we're under grace. But the law still has a purpose. The whole purpose of the law was to show us our need for grace. What do we need a gift of grace? What do we need the gift of Jesus dying on the cross for? It's because of the law. It's because we broke the law. And the law shows us that. The Ten Commandments show us that. Looking at the list in 1 Timothy 1. Looking at verse 8. For we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous man. It's not made to show us how righteous we are. It's not made, you don't even need the command for someone who's already obeying it. You don't need to tell someone who's not ever going to murder or steal or lie not to do those things. He's not doing them. It's made for us who are sinners because we are sinners. We do do these things and we do know that they're wrong and that God is going to hold us accountable. There is a punishment for breaking the law. Look at the list of lawless, of uh, breaking the law that we have in verse 9. 1 Timothy 1, for a righteous man, but for lawless, not for the righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, which we all are sinners, for unholy and for profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, 
know, for those who commit adultery or fornication, for them that defile themselves with mankind, in other words, for homosexuals, for men stealers, human traffickers, or this would include the area sometimes people have tried to use the Bible to, to condone slavery, but this here, the type of slavery that was in the Bible was more of a servitude, more of a paying off a debt than is owed, whereas men stealing, taking someone, kidnapping them, and forcing them to be a slave, that would be a sin as defined here in the Bible. Men stealers. For liars, and notice for perjured persons, we come to liars and perjured persons after this list of things that most of us would admit these are pretty bad things. I, I don't do any of those things. You, know? you think, well, those are pretty bad things. Then we get to lying and perjury, and anytime we even submit taxes here in the United States, you have to you know, sign a statement saying something like, uh, on, on your taxes that you understand the tax code and you've submitted your taxes accurately and every time we sign that we because of how complicated the tax code are, is we probably have committed perjury uh, especially for me as a pastor it's gotten so much more complicated it's uh, over my head but uh, liars and, 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 and have you ever told a lie all of us tend to very easily can you very easily tell a lie uh, how are you doing? You know, how do you like this? How do you like that? You know, you have to be careful not to think that we're better than someone else. Liars is right in the list with all these terrible things. To God, you break one. You're just as guilty as you broke them all. All of us are equally condemned. And no matter how bad a sin is or how little it is, God ha can forgive the greatest sin and the smallest sin still condemns us as much. So everyone is in need of the forgiveness. Everyone can receive, anyone. No one is bad enough that they cannot be saved by God's grace. And Paul lifts himself up as an example of such a person. For perjured persons, and, they, and there be no other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, anyone who teaches something that's opposite of the Bible is also just as guilty as all these others. Verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. And the second element, we spent a lot of time on the first element, we'll spend just a little bit on these last two. The uh, second element of ministry is that we have a sacred trust. The sacred trust of ministry. The second elementary ministry is the sacred trust, that God entrusts the gospel ministry. Serving him is a trust that he gives to us. Look at verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Because ministry, serving God, is a trust, it's something that's given to us by God. We're entrusted with it by God. God gets all the glory for it. You see that in verse 11, according to the glorious gospel. God gets the glory. Look at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me. It's God who enables us to serve him. He gives us the opportunity. He gives us the ability. He gives us the gifts to serve him with our lives, to serve him through our church. He enables us for that he counted me faithful, Paul says. You know, when we think of Paul, we think of someone who was such a hero of the faith, who did so much to serve God with his life and ministry, and yet he says, no, it's not me. God is the one who enabled me. God gets all the glory for our ministry, for serving him. He counted me faithful, says Paul, putting me into the ministry. And this word for ministry, 
Sometimes this is used thinking, oh, that's talking about pastors. It's not just pastors. That word for ministry means service. It's the same word that is translated deacon in other parts of the Bible. That he put me into the ministry, serving God. Something that God enables us to do for him. Verse 13. And not just for pastors, but for all of us. Verse 13. Who was before a blasphemer. Paul is speaking here of himself. He used to be someone who spoke against Christ. He was a blasphemer. Someone who said Christ was just a man and not God. And he persecuted, a persecutor. Someone who pursued Christians and put them in jail and had them beaten. He was there when Stephen was stoned to death. And he was going to Damascus to take prisoners back to Jerusalem, some of whom may have been killed for their faith in Christ. But God came to Paul, who was called Saul at that point in his life, blinded him and spoke to him. And even though he was persecuting the church, God revealed the gospel to him. He put his faith in it, and he, by God's grace, was saved through faith. Injurious, he says. I was injurious. I was doing injury. He was having Christians locked up and beaten and taken from their homes and some even killed but I obtained mercy. He didn't receive the punishment. He says, I deserved God to punish me. I didn't deserve to be saved from that. I had already rejected Christ. I'd already spoken against him. And yet, God showed him mercy. But I obtained mercy, says Paul, because I did it ignorantly in an unbelief. And the grace, that's a free gift we don't deserve. The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul is giving all the glory to God. Look at verse 17. He continues giving the glory to God in verse 17. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and amen. Forever and ever and amen. So all the glory for ministry, for serving God, belongs to God. And it's God's grace that has given us that trust. It's God's grace that gives us. Looking at verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit, for this this cause I I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting." In another passage in uh, 2 Peter, Peter tells us that God is long-suffering, and this illustrates it, and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Paul is a prime example of that, that God was patient with Paul, and he didn't immediately dismiss Paul, but he knew that when Paul received the gospel and that Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and spoke to him, that Paul would come to repentance and turn from persecuting the church and become a minister, become a servant, become an apostle, a missionary for God and serve God with his life. And it's by God's grace that Paul had that opportunity to serve God, to be in ministry by God's grace. And finally, under the sacred trust that we have as, in serving God, This trust of ministry, of serving God, involves spiritual warfare. Look at verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee, and that word commit has the idea of investing. Like when you take money to a bank, 
or buy stock in a company. He's committing, he's entrusting Timothy with this. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck in war, in a battle. Now, the war for our soul, if you are a believer, was won when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. That was the war for your soul. That was won, okay? But every day, living for God, when we leave this building, when we go home to our daily lives, to be like God and to respond to the things in our lives as God would have us, as would bring glory to Him. That's a daily battle. There's spiritual warfare. Satan does not want us to serve God with our lives. And he especially, of course, makes war against anyone who, who attempts to serve, against Paul as an apostle, brings, whether it's physical persecution, spiritual or mental or emotional discouragement of any kind, and he brings that against anyone who would like to serve God in any way with their life, through their church, in ministry, in their personal life, doing what God would honor God. Satan is against that, and he wants to shipwreck them. When we're navigating our lives, trying to follow God's plan for our life, We've got to be wary that Satan is opposed to that and wants us to have shipwreck. And some people have had their lives shipwrecked. And in ministry, uh, there's often examples of people who have fallen into sin and no longer been able to use to the same extent that they could have had they not fallen into sin. And some have just gotten distracted with other things. And perhaps that's the case here with these names that Paul brings up of whom is Hymenius and Alexander whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And delivered unto Satan, perhaps he's talking about the type of excommunication, saying, okay, they're being removed from church membership now because they're serving Satan, not God anymore. Until they get right with God, they're, they're separate. Uh, maybe that's what he's talking about. Or maybe he's, he's referring to something that we're not, that is, was only for an apostle to deal with, like Peter dealt with Ananias and Sapphira, where he commits them to Satan. We're never told in the Bible to commit someone to Satan. That's not something we are ever told to do. Uh, we, we do have the, if it's referring to separating someone out of church membership because they're living in sin, uh, yes, we have that in other passages. But if this is talking about committing someone to Satan, something maybe that only belongs to an apostle. In any case, the example is here for us that some people have shipwrecked their lives and then taken out of ministry. In this case, committed to Satan by Paul, saying, you belong to Satan now. Until they are right with God, they are, can no longer serve God as they once did. That is the second element of ministry, is that ministry, serving God, is a sacred trust. We're a steward of God. We represent God. We've been entrusted with serving Him. Some people have ship, made shipwreck and, and strayed from that. Uh, all the glory goes to God. It's by His grace and His strength that we can serve Him. And then the third element that we'll briefly touch on here, the third element of ministry, is that the first weapon of ministry with which we're entrusted is prayer. Look at verse 2. Of, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications 
prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. For all men, we're to pray for everyone, including, verse 2, for kings, for our government. So even for Nero, who was the emperor at this time, he's saying, even for Nero, if we're supposed to pray for Nero, I guess that really does mean we pray for everyone, right? Okay, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may live. And the goal of this prayer, of praying for all men, the goal, the reason, the purpose for prayer, that we may lead, verse 2, a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Because when we pray for all men and when we live a quiet and peaceable life, a life that is pleasing to God, this pleases God. Look at verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men. We need to pray that everyone will get saved. God wants everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So not just to be saved, not just to go. Certainly God does not want anyone to go to hell. But no one who goes to hell gets there not deserving it. God wants us all to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants us to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. He died for us. He took our punishment. He paid the price for our sin to be testified in due time. Wherewith I am ordained a preacher, says Paul, and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ, the lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so it's important that we keep our lives, when we pray, that we keep our lives clean, our consciences clean, so that there, that does not prevent God from answering our prayer. Prayer is that first uh, weapon of ministry, that first tool, if you will, or instrument, or calling of ministry. We must be praying. And that's the way, you know, I've been speaking of ministry and Paul and his service to God, but one way that we can all serve God in ministry is through prayer. Prayer is a ministry. We're all called to pray. So now we have looked at three elements of ministry in 1 Timothy chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 8. And these elements of ministry should encourage us to serve God with our lives and through our involvement in our church and, and through prayer. That first part, that first element of ministry, the purpose of ministry that we're to teach God's word and avoid anything that is not building us up to be godly, to live godly lives, and that we should be producing faith and love, love of a pure heart, faith that's not uh, fake. Paul's faith was true, and that was testified by his being willing to be stoned to death in Timothy's hometown. Timothy was a witness to the true faith, real faith that Paul had. And uh, the second element is that it's a sacred trust. Paul was entrusted. All the glory goes for ministry, for serving God, goes back to God. He's the one that enables us by his grace and allows us to serve him. And the first way that we should all be serving him is in prayer. That third element of ministry, prayer, the first weapon we're given, the first way in which we should be serving God, all of us, is in prayer. 
Are we serving God with our lives? Are we serving God through our church? Are we praying for those in our church? Are we making intercession for, to God? He is our mediator, Christ. We can pray straight to him. There's no other one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. There's no other person we have to go through. We go directly to God in prayer. Are we serving God in that way, first of all, and keeping our lives clean so that we can serve God even in that way? And bring glory to God by serving Him. Let's uh, take this, these thoughts to God in prayer now. Heavenly Father,